Hi, Poddleters. I know this isn't normal upload day, but this episode was recorded on the 10th of February 2020 um, at the Moth Club. And it, the title is When Will Britain Accept Its Systemic Racism? It was a live episode with Africa and Adam and it was amazing, but unfortunately the sound quality wasn't that great, so I never got round to putting it up at the time. However, in relation to everything that's been going on and the heightened conversations around racism um, and the more engagement with the Black Lives Matter movement, which is something that is needed heavily, I thought now was the best time to try and get it up. So my producer amazingly has managed to edit it so that it is listenable, which I'm really pleased because we weren't sure if it was salvageable. And I really hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something from it. And I have also put loads of resources in the description box below. So if you're looking for further reading or further information on these topics, then I would suggest having a look in the drop box below. Thank you for listening, as always. Goodbye. Hello. Can we have a big round of applause? Woo! Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you didn't all get drenched. I've had to restyle my hair. I got rained on. But anyway, on to the important stuff. So welcome to Adulting Live. Today's episode is When Will Britain Accept Its Systemic Racism? Quite a hefty one. And today I am joined by Adam and Africa. So I'm going to open up with letting my guest uh, tell you a little bit about who they are and what they do. And then we're going to go straight into the conversation. Adam, should we start with you? Sure. Um, so my name's Adam, uh, Adam Pugh. Um, I am an ex-police officer. I spent four years in the Met as a volunteer police officer, as a special constable. Um, and I'm now an anti-racism campaigner. Um, that's what I've been doing for like the last four or five years. Um, yeah. Africa? I'm Africa. Um, I've just had a bit of an awakening. I'm on my second child. And I've um, got two girls under four. And it's just brought back all that stuff of what I went through at a young age. And... Um, and so it's just like changed my focus of what I actually really need to speak up against now. And um, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming. So I guess there's been so many things going on lately in the news, what with Meghan Markle and Lawrence Fox and Stormzy's um, conversation with the interview being like, is Britain 100% racist? So that we're going to come on to those specifics. But the first thing I think we need to attack in case people aren't 100% sure is what really is systemic racism? So I think we understand what kind of active racism is, but there's things that are a bit more insidious. And I wanted to maybe start with Adam to explain, maybe if you could explain it in a really specific way within the police, in a way that we could then like work back from that to explain how it seeps into our day-to-day life. So I think in the context of the police, it's about, um, it's about outcomes and it's about the way that it manifests itself, right? So often we hear about um, racism in the police and within the personal it's framed as it's just a few bad apples and it's really unhelpful to think about it in that context because it's not about bad apples it's about a rotten apple cart and you can take bad apples out and put good apples in but if the if the apple cart is broken all that happens is, is those apples just continue to rot um, so it's it's understanding that actually myself included I don't separate myself from it but good well-intentioned people can still be a part of a system that perpetuates racist outcomes. Um, 
And I think that would be how I would frame it in the context of the piece, for sure. So I guess Adam and I are both looking in as white people who are hopefully being allies to people who are marginalised. But Africa, you're speaking from a personal experience. And so I had to even say to Africa, like when I asked him, I was like, I'm really sorry I'm making you do this because I'm basically making you relive a kind of trauma, which is your day-to-day life of constantly feeling like you're being othered. Um, but we, you did say it was okay, so I'm going to ask you about <laughs> it. Um, is there any way that you can try and explain that feeling for those of us who probably haven't been... I mean, I can see there's a lot of white women in the audience and we all understand what sexism feels like, but we don't understand necessarily what racism feels like. Is there a way that you could explain that feels applicable to everyone? I don't know, maybe with the sexism thing, because I think we're all on board with that, it's that constant denial as well. So not only is it that thing that you go through every single day in every experience, and also the not feeling safe aspect, but it's that constant, is it that bad? Are you sure? Do you think maybe it was because of this instead? It's that on top of it. So you're starting behind. You're in a system already that doesn't favour you. The second you leave your home, you're code switching. You're very conscious of your body language, your pronunciation, what you're wearing. And you just never really get to switch off. And I think we were saying upstairs that having to do things like that that are so draining, that has an impact on your performance in every aspect of life your work, you know, you're working double time, your relationships at home, you're then, you know, how are you going back to your loved ones after a day of hardcore racism, systemic racism, microaggressions? Um, And so, yeah, it is, it's that constant denial, but something that is just there bubbling away um, and wondering each day, how is it going to manifest itself today? Is it going to be an easy day of microaggressions that I kind of like know how to bat off? Or is it going to have to be something that I'm really going to have to fight? So one of the biggest things that we were talking about upstairs, I think one of the biggest issues that Britain is facing is that we're just not accepting the fact that we're racist. Stormzy might have answered that, is Britain racist? And he said, yes, 100% meaning parts of it. But we are fundamentally 100% racist. Like We are built of racist foundations. And we know that our institutions favour people who are white. And we know that slavery was here in the UK really not that long ago. And all of these things are kind of seeped into the way that we live our lives. And we were talking about upstairs how as a white person, you automatically profit off of um, institutionalized racism, racism, lots of things that happen basically, even if you're not actively acting on those things, if you're inactive and participating within society and not speaking up about anything, you're still sort of profiting. And I wanted to explain a little bit more, I guess, why or how, especially as a white person from an ally's point of view, what kind of actions can you take? Because you actually left the police off the basis of it being racist, right? That was... The reason why you stepped away yeah I mean to an extent although um you know I was naive so I I I, I didn't leave specifically because of that I always had that perspective before I went in I think my my view was if you want to make a difference be the difference go in and make a change from within and I realized that that just wasn't going to be possible um but for me in terms of that, that word allyship is a really it's a funny word, but it, a large part of that is just is listening. You know, like that's not my lived experience. Um, I've been fortunate enough, I guess, to be around it close enough to see it. So, for example, I grew up in South London in Deptford on a Peeps estate, really deprived um, estate, um, really quite diverse. And, you know, like my best friend growing up, um, we went to the same school. We dressed the same, listened to the same music. We're very culturally similar. The only difference is, is he's a black Nigerian man and I'm a white guy. 
he's been stopping search more times in one week than I have in my entire life. I saw that. I couldn't deny the, the difference in experience that we had. Um, so <clears throat> I think part of that is just being able to just listen to other people's experiences. And, and it's about, so allyship is about, it's about assisting. It's not about taking a lead. It's how can I serve? How can I show up and help you? Like, what is it that you're trying to do? Um, and how can I help you to achieve that goal? So I'm, you know, you talk about um, like us all benefiting from our whiteness. Like whiteness, that we 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 are inherited stakeholders in white supremacy, and we all benefit from it, whether you like it or not. Um, you know, the reason why I'm invited to spaces to speak is because I am a white person saying it. I'm not saying anything different to what hundreds of other, you know, black um, black people and people of color aren't saying. But because I'm white, suddenly. Um, it makes it a little bit more palatable. Um, so it's understanding that and, and, and just kind of figuring out how do, we, how do we use that to kind of, I guess, dismantle it and break it down. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I did ask you as well was because when I was going through all of your Instagram, you had a whole point about how this, I've won this award and you were saying it's really unjust that I, as a white man, am being kind of like put up as this bastion of anti-racism when I'm certainly not the first to say it. And that's really helpful. And in this age of what I believe to be kind of like woke culture, you would kind of hope that racism is dissipating a bit. But Africa, I'm sure you know that it's a really weird polarized time. Like, what do you think is happening in terms of, we seem to have like rising fascism and perhaps rising racism. But on the other hand, I'm sure you're probably a room full of quite woke, woke from inverted commas people. Like, how, what do you think, how do you think the landscape is changing? It's definitely seeming to be talking about racism more, but whether or not we're actually doing anything about it, I'm not sure. We're talking about it more, but we're also so much more defensive. You know, I'm guessing for you guys to be part of this audience, even though you didn't know what this was about tonight, I'm guessing that you think you're quite open people. But sometimes it's those people that are the last ones that want to hear that they could have been racist, and you might be the most defensive. And I, I host a lot of conversations about this on my social media, and then my DMs are then full of people saying, yes, but not me. <laughs> but why are you reaching out to me to tell me that? How is that beneficial or, you know, like pointing out those small ways in which what I've said might have been wrong. And what I say with allyship is that you have to be anti-racist. You, you can't say I'm not racist. I'd hope you're not. But you have to be actively anti-racist. What did you do today? Because racism is everywhere and it's happening all the time. And we see people being treated differently for their race. But what did you do today? because it would be easier for you to do something to stand up for someone than me, for example. And if we already know that a black woman is going to be seen to be more aggressive, then why not come along with your lovely accent and your calm self and, and step up for that person and say, oh, I overheard that you called the receptionist aggressive. I just wanted to write on file if that's helpful at all, that I actually thought she was really professional and she handled that really well. You know, it can make such a difference. But being an ally is not a social media thing. And that's why sometimes when I have these conversations, I turn my replies off because people are so quick to just prove to you what they've done in the past. Just please go home and continue these conversations. It's not for a badge of honor, as you said. These are real life things. Don't apply it to social media. I really hope you're doing that at work as well. I really hope you're doing that at school because those are the people that will benefit. I know my best friends are not anti-racist and it breaks my heart, but they're not. They are people who like yourself, grew up in exactly the same setting as me, absolutely could never be racist if they wanted to. But because of that, unfortunately, they don't think they have to be anti-racist. And so when I send them a, a petition to sign because 
black women are five times more likely to die after childbirth and I want something to be done. And for some reason, that campaign hasn't got to, to Parliament yet. My friends can't be bothered to listen to the podcast, but you're a mum. So you should care because you're a mum and I'm a mum and I nearly died in my first childbirth and that should be important to you. So it's allyship is listening, but also it's the action as well as listening um, and not having to be prompted. The reason why I met Anoni was at a, a panel talk and somebody said something horrific in the audience and I was on stage and I just looked out and her eyes were like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I didn't even know who you were and we spoke afterwards and I just thought that to me was allyship. You didn't actually need to say anything, but I knew I wasn't going crazy at that point in time because I caught a stranger's eye who looked nothing like me and you let me know that what was said was wrong. Yeah. It's funny because I definitely, and we were talking about this before, I definitely was brought up in a way, not not actively, but in a way that I had racist ideas or, again, I would never have known that I was acting in a way, but I might walk a bit quicker when I was going home if there was a black man behind me more than I might if there was a white man. And that's kind of learned racist and le- learned racism and learned prejudice. We have to be doing this work, which is why it's helpful that this is a room full of white people. Adam, you were just telling me about how you were invited to do a talk. Um, can, I t- can I talk about this? You were paid to do a talk to explain to people about white privilege. You basically were saying how it's really interesting. There was someone that popped up, a white man, that was basically charging people to explain to them how to deal with white privilege or how to not be racist? So race has kind of become like a a fashionable um, or at least a little bit more of an acceptable conversation, right? And and there's there's money to be made from talking about it. Um, I'm thinking like in my experience, you know, like conversations around race and a lot of this work and a lot of activism around this area has been done for many years um, by black women, predominantly um, queer black women in my experience. Often there's a labor of love um, and yeah, and they they get burnt out and they're doing it for free. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing people come along and kind of hopping on this sort of new band, uh, this new wave of, you know, woke culture um, and making a a profit from it. Um, The event that you're you're speaking about, so I was was invited to this event because this guy that nobody had heard, I mean, I've, you know, I've been doing this work for sort of four or five years and it's quite small so everyone sort of knows each other or names come up and nobody had ever heard of this guy and he was charging 375 pounds was like the the start start a sort of base price and then that went up in tiers depending on how much you've you've um you you earn and when i went and when i spoke to him and said you know sort of so how how did you decide to do this or or how did this come about what reading have you done um it basically was he'd read Renier de Lodi's book um, and decided, yeah, cool, I need to start having this conversation um, and then started charging people for it. The quote from the book that I think that he was kind of hanging on was that Rennie says that, you know, that um, if there are white people that, that consider themselves to, to not be racist or to be progressive, that we need to start having these conversations and we need to start doing the work, which is true. I think there's a separate conversation to be had about whether it's okay to profit off of it. Mm. But those conversations happen in the workplace, in your home, in your family, on, on the bus, public transport, like all of those spaces are spaces where you can have that conversation and do that work. Um, I think there's a, it's a, a huge leap to, to take it from there to like, cool, I'm now going to come and do whole workshops and classes where I'm going to educate you on your, on your whiteness. Totally. So when that book came out for you, Africa, what did you feel about that? Was that something that you were like, 
this is really helpful. Did, I was, did you read it? You're laughing. I was just going to say, I didn't read it because... You don't need to read it. <laughs> no, not because I didn't need to read it. I've met her. She's amazing. But yeah, when I saw the title, I know what this is going to be about. I know why black people don't talk to white people about race. So I probably should read it. <laughs> and I'm sure it's brilliant. But um, no, it's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when they see us, that was on Netflix. Yeah. And everybody was saying, you must watch it. I don't need to watch that. That's the most triggering piece of, mm. it's not even in entertainment for me. It's not teach me anything new. You know, something is going to be painful to watch, but it's going to teach you something new. Absolutely, I'm open to watching it. But it was kind of like that thing. I I do, I get triggered very easily about race. I really do. Nothing tonight that will be spoken about, but it, it's a denial of it that I find really triggering, to be honest. Um, and so that was the reason why I didn't read it. But it needed to be written and if off the back of that so many people are much more open to speaking about things that's an amazing thing mm. and it's interesting because we've been calling it work which it is and I think emotional labor is coming to our lexicon as a term that we kind of understand now but when it comes to things that you literally have to like tonight this is work like you're not getting paid you're not just doing this for free but on your Instagram you're saying like you turn off your dms and you can't talk about it it took me ages to understand something we spoke about earlier as well about how like it's not for me just to, because sometimes as a white woman, I did, used to do this, you would feel proud of yourself for asking the right question. So I wasn't really doing it to be like, want to know the answer. I wanted to have asked this question that made me look really woke, which is not a, f- a cool thing to do. But I think understanding the deepness and the nuance of race, like it's not just a fun and trendy thing to understand when you really get like into the nitty gritty of it. It's like life changing. And also, why do you need to ask a black woman question I I don't understand that I really don't you you don't ask a sexual assault victim how did that feel or you know could you go into more detail if you want to approach that subject and learn more about it you respect that that's not the place to go for the answers and sometimes I get backlash to say you know like you want to teach people first of all I really don't I really really don't (laughs) but you know you want to teach people and then your DMs are off you haven't responded to my thing I I had this whole thing where I spoke about um why it's so wrong to touch a black woman's hair, but actually it came from my daughter. My four-year-old has got the most beautiful afro, really, really long hair. And if we go out and it's in an afro, it is every weekend, we plait it for school, maybe six, seven, eight times a day, people will grab it because they cannot bear to let that go past without touching it. To me, that's the epitome of a colonialist mindset, to be honest. It's that's something different. I've never seen it before. I want to touch it. I'm going to touch it. Forget consent. Forget it's a child. Forget all the things that I'm trying to teach her that you've just undone. And then also forget the fact that my only instinct that I can do makes me the aggressive black woman. But I also have to teach my child that that was so wrong. So we have to react in this way. Because we had this whole thing. And actually, the majority of people writing in, because I always share anonymously what people have written in, were white mums of mixed race children who were shocked that this happened, but it happens to their child now. And they had no idea. But you must acknowledge that part of you being so desperate to have a mixed race child, because a lot of them spoke with this language of, you know, and I couldn't wait to see what a baby was going to look like and what the hair was going to be, but nobody else can touch it. But you've played into that. Yeah. You've massively played into that. And now you're just shocked at the volume of it happening. And nobody likes to be told that you might have participated in that in some way shape or form when you was dating your black partner what kind of questions did you ask what were you shocked about what did you want to know 
you perpetuated that as well. I don't want any part of that, but especially not for my child. And a lot of what came off that was, you know, I've just got this very specific question. I know you spent a week talking about why it's so wrong to touch Afro hair, but I'm a teacher in that instance because I pet everyone's hair. How do you feel? Or I've got some mixed race nieces and some white nieces and I play with the white nieces hair, so surely it can't be wrong to... Why are you looking for the one way in which you can be the exception? Mm. I've just told you how I feel. I can't speak for anyone else. I've told you I spent a week going into all the nuances, all the detail of why it's so wrong and why you should consider it. My best friend said to me, we were on holiday in Spain, and she could see it with her own eyes for the first time. But it doesn't just happen on holiday, it happens more here. And she said, you know what, Africa, it's really bad because my dad would be that person, but he'd do it to everyone. And I said, I appreciate that. But what you should do if you're an ally is go home and say, Dad, you're never going to believe it. Africa's just spent this time telling me how it made her feel. And even though that comes naturally to you, I really don't think you should ever do it, particularly if it's Afro hair. Why can't you say that? Why is it so intrinsic for you to say, but I'm a teacher, but I have nieces and nephews of other races, but this is my work environment, but this is how I show affection. That's the not listening part. That's the, that's the side of this woke culture that also is so defensive that I sometimes battle with. Adam, I wanted to ask you specifically about, you were saying um, previously that you think, I was saying how historically we haven't learned much about like Britain and its racist history and slavery in the UK. And we hear about police brutality in the US and you know racial profiling in the US, but actually thought it might be slightly more insidious in the UK. And we, we really don't know the names of victims and we don't hear the stories of people. I wondered if you could speak on that a little bit. Yeah. And I think that, that, that kind of speaks to the way that white supremacy functions and has functioned in Britain historically. Because even if we talk about slavery or the transatlantic slave trade, that was something that happened over there. It, it didn't happen on our shores. Whereas in America, they have a very different relationship with, with race and slavery to what we have here. Um, so what we're really great at is saying, you know, well, we're not as bad as they are in America. We're, we're, you know, look at what's happening over there. Um, and actually, in many ways, I think it, it's in many ways it's worse here, or in many ways it's more more brutal and more violent. So, for example, we've had since 1990 there've been almost 1,800 people that have either died in police custody or following um, police contact. And whilst not all of those are, are black people or people of colour, disproportionately and overwhelmingly they are. Um, can anyone guess how many police officers have ever been prosecuted in this country? Not one. Um, and at least in America they have, right? And, and here, we don't have the same gun culture. We don't have routinely armed police here. So for me, my opinion would be, it doesn't take a particularly strong or brave person to stand and pull a trigger at a distance. But here, you know, those 1,800 people that we're talking about, we're talking about having the life snuffed out of you. You know, my cousin was killed in 2011, Shani Lewis. Um, by 11 police officers um, that literally choked him to death. Um, so there were, there were many ways. And, and, and from the top of my head, I think there have been, there's only been 12 cases since 1990 that have been ruled as unlawful killings. But there have been unlawful killing verdicts. And even then, like not one police officer has ever been prosecuted. So, um, yeah, you know, everybody can, can name the Tamir Rice and the Eric Garner. And, um, but with the exception of Mark Duggan, not many people know 
you know, Kevin Clark that was killed last year in Lucian by the police or, you know, um, many of those cases here. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but we're, we're quite, we're quite proud and we're sort of, you know, we're prim and proper and we don't, that's not something that we do here. That, that's, that's over there. And we have to reckon with that and we have to, we have to, you know, accept it and acknowledge it. And, and part of that is, is, is uncomfortable, but it's, it's necessary. It's so devastating to hear about your cousin and all the other people that have been wrongfully killed at the hands of a racist culture. But I think why it's so important to hear those stories is because when we do read in the newspaper about Meghan Markle and Piers Morgan's on another one of his tirades because he's weirdly obsessed with her, that's actually dangerous because I think what we don't do sometimes is recognise that, that what we see on the surface is bubbling up from much, much darker roots and much scarier things. And if we don't tackle... Like the Lawrence Fox interview, which I've actually completely forgotten what happened. I think so. I've like blocked it out. It's such a T-U-N-T. Um, that that actually really scared me because I don't really follow much obtusely racist fa- like rhetoric. So when when you see that kind of being in the zeitgeist, people just talking so openly and everyone going here, here, this doesn't exist. Like it might seem like this is happening in celeb culture, and it's all kind of oh well, it's happening over there. But all it does is it reinforces these ideas in different areas. And the reason why, like, having these conversations, I think, is so important is because once we accept that this is happening and that Meghan Markle know it's not just an accident, that there's, like, 50 articles about her ruining everything and then everything about Kate Middleton is she's amazing and these things aren't just by accident, they are racially motivated, then we can get down to the awful things that happen within, like, police structures and things. Um, And Africa, one of the biggest things you're saying, the hardest thing to get through is the fact that people just won't accept that you have had racial discrimination. Could you talk about that? No, I was saying so, Noni. You know, even silly little things, forget actual racism that happened. Let's just say, for example, everybody eating a certain type of food that you don't identify with every single day for lunch. Everybody celebrating specific cultural customs that you don't resonate with at home. You not being able to get Christmas or Easter off, even though they're your lived traditions and customs and religious beliefs. You coming in with your natural hair, I assume how everybody's hair is today is some form of natural, and being touched and pulled and how do you get it like that? Do you wash it? Is it possible to brush it when you're at your desk and you're actually just trying to work? So even though you just got your hair done, you book another appointment and you get it done in a way that it's going to look like your colleagues, even though that means that you sat with a chemical burn in your scalp for four hours, like you know, it's all these things. I said to this woman, you must understand that it's a huge privilege for you to not notice these things, but they've impacted my work significantly. You know, so it is, it's that, again, it's the whole denial thing, isn't it? It's, um, it's really, really difficult when the first thing you can't even get past is whether or not racism even exists. And having to prove constantly in your mind what part of that constituted racism in Africa, you know? That's so powerful. One thing I probably should have outlined at the beginning is the difference between racism and prejudice, because racism is privilege plus power. So you can have a prejudice against someone, but if you're not in a more powerful position than them, then it can never be racist. And one thing I wanted to, I think we should perhaps touch on is this idea of reverse racism, um, because it's something which I know is getting a lot of airtime and people think it's a good means of kind of twisting the arguments that we don't really have to face up what's what's going on i don't know if either of you would be feel like you're better well versed in explaining why this isn't a thing or what people think it is 
I mean, reverse racism, <clears throat> the myth of reverse racism. You know, when 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 people usually say that, right? So that so this was the whole um, what's his name, Lawrence Fox. Lawrence Fox. This was his whole argument that, that he was actually being discriminated against and was being racist against him for for having his privilege pointed out. Um, and whilst there are times where that might make us feel uncomfortable or people might dislike us because of our race or whatever the case may be, like it, it doesn't change anything in terms of my lived experience. Like You can hate me for being a white man, but I'm still 12 times more likely to, to get a job. I'm still eight times less likely to be prosecuted than a black man for, for the same crime. There, there, there are all of these different different facets of the way that it functions, that that, that prejudice and that act doesn't actually have any bearing or any impact on my life. Mm. Um, so it's just, a, it's just a really, it's a really reductive way of just trying to derail and dismiss the conversation. That's all it is. It's literally just about trying to derail it and take it elsewhere. Um, yeah. Did you have something to add? You know what we were talking about? Um, oh, what's the name? Heidi Cleave. Yeah, yeah. Since when was it wrong to say white? Oh, it's like so offensive now, but you've been calling me black all my life. You cannot say a story without saying, and then this big black guy came over, hold on a second, what part of the end of this story has to do with him being black? I've always said it to my friends, I've always stopped them. Why did you just tell me he was black? Why did you just say that it was Somalian woman? Like, you're trying to coerce my view of the end of this story. You want me to know. If a, if a headline doesn't say a race, it's a white person. It's a fact. It will never be a white person, even when it's a white terrorist. And that's such a key, important fact to um, make sure there isn't any like hate crimes, for example. It's omitted. Mm. And a photo won't be released straight away, you know. So why is it so offensive to say white when I thought we was just describing people? Oh, don't take any offense. It was just to add to the story. I just wanted you to know what they looked like. But that, you must understand shows that you have a superior view of yourself because you are the default and you believe that white is the default and should never have to explain white and should never have to you know you could be white with Irish roots or you could be white and if your grandparents just at that level might be from Scandinavia you're never going to be asked where you're really from because your accent is let's say neutral and your skin is white so it's really really dangerous to hold yourself in such high regard that you are the base point for everything. And, you know, when you speak about, um, when you said about our history of, <clears throat> we have a different relationship where we speak about slavery, it's so insulting to me that we even reference slavery all the time. That's the only part of my history you're willing to even mention at school. So you're teaching my four-year-olds who I'm teaching, you're kind, you're smart, you're important, all these things. She goes to school and comes back and says, oh, we were slaves. No, we weren't slaves. I read something yesterday, it was so poignant. We were doctors, we were teachers, we were scientists, we were parents, we were stolen and made slaves. But before that, we were all of these things. And so when you say, actually, we are going to share a tiny bit of your history, but we're going to say the worst part. Not only are you perpetuating a racist view to white people, you're also upholding this really low self-esteem to black people that you are below you don't challenge the ideology then when you're at school and you're at work that you are subpar because you've been told it from the absolute beginning. Yeah, thank you for pointing out that's such an important 
reference to think about when when we speak about these things. And I also wanted to go back to the point about white terrorism because it's such a good example of um, systemic racism. When you look at newspaper headings, what would be like father of two accidentally kills 70 people. But then the other article will be like hijabi terrorist almost kills one like the the language in that that's the best example of how to see the way that these stories because it is media as well that help to perpetuate these ideas and subconsciously like if you read the daily mail which my mum does it really stresses me out because it will just make you racist you just have to stop reading it you can look at the pictures but that's it um it is so imbued and if you actually step back and look at it like genuinely take a look at what's going on it is everywhere and so it's there's no wonder it slips into our lexicon but I do think that we are responsible I try to reverse myself as often as possible as a white woman because it is if we're going to use those descriptors then we might as well get them in in every count as you say Um, and I think language is something which maybe stops people talking about race because we never know like at the minute I say woman of color um, but I know that certain people might not like that term and I think one thing we have to do uh, as white people is be like fuck it maybe I'm going to say the wrong thing but at least I'm trying to make this conversation more inclusive I'm sure that you would rather feel like people are actually listening and interested than just being like oh I don't want to I don't want to say the wrong thing do you is that how you'd feel yeah 100% I used to say woman of color all the time until I realized that actually lots of people who weren't black were using it to argue with me and challenge me on my views about why something wasn't racist So then you must say that that's from your perspective, for example, as an Asian woman, because you've lived life very differently to me. So maybe we shouldn't say woman of colour. Maybe you can talk about your experience as a mixed race woman. Um, But by saying woman of colour, I've found that usually it's either from non-blacks who aren't white to say, well, my experience wasn't that bad, or from white people to say, I spoke to another woman of colour. Who was she? Where's she from? What's her experience? You know, it's, People of colour is surely 80% of the world, right? So how can, you, how can you start any conversation by talking to people of colour? I don't find it offensive. It's not something that I'd ever get my back up against. But it doesn't describe me at all. I'm a black woman. I'm actually a mixed race woman, but her skin is black. So I could never even identify as mixed race if I wanted to, which I don't. But that's how much it comes down to face value in today's world. It's how you look. That's how society will treat you. So woman of colour and certain terms, I just always think, what is your intention of using it? If it's an honest intention and it's, you know, to be inclusive or to talk about an issue, that's fine. But I've found more and more recently it's used in quite a dangerous way, um, often to just disprove something that you can't identify with, but another race did. Yeah. Um, I guess also what we're talking about here ties into your work with Black Lives Matter, because we know that people love to be like, all lives matter. Um, and I wonder if you could explain why, like, that kind of isn't helpful. Like, why we need to let people have their space to celebrate something which they aren't often afforded. Is that a really badly worded question? No, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm the, the best person to ask that question to. But I think, um, just jumping back a section, in terms, of, um, in terms of language and how dangerous it can be and, and unhelpful it can be, kind of tying into the All Lives Matter thing is is that whole conversation about around terrorism, right? And about how white people are generally not labelled as, as, as terrorists. I, personally, I, I do think we have to be quite careful with that as well because what ends up happening is, is we have these cries for, for using that language, 
for having white people referred to as terrorists. When that's what's happened, this is an act of terrorism. But but actually, that is still a part of it's still a part of that that harmful problem because what happens is you see that used to increase terrorism powers, in, increase you know policing and, and militarization and all of these things that ultimately it still isn't white people that are, that are affected most by that. Um, so I think we have to be quite careful about how the way that we navigate these conversations on what it is that we're actually asking for. Um, in terms of like safe spaces and, and having those spaces, I guess it's like the, the violence of whiteness and, and one of the things that allows it to continue is its invisibility because it is just the norm, because it is just the default, because we are never, we're rarely ever racialized. Um, and we're rarely ever made to sit down and reckon with our, our whiteness or our race. So when we are, or when it's pointed out and we are racialized and we're, we're, we're told or we're referred to as white, there's a, there's a level of discomfort because it's not something that we're used to. So, you know, I didn't walk into this room today and be like, oh, shit, I'm the odd one out. Or I, I didn't have that, I didn't have that feeling, right? <laughs> um, so it is really important to have those spaces where people can, I mean, like black people and people of color can have those conversations and feel safe and not, be, not have to be confronted with, I mean, like the microaggressions and all of the other, like, other things that happen with, you know, perfectly good, well-intentioned people. You know, I, I remember being at a, an event, um, it was called Decolonizing Love. And I was there with a friend of mine who is a, a dark-skinned Sierra Leonean black woman, just a friend. And I was with my son, who's a mixed-race child. And this white woman came over to us in front of my friend and said, oh, my God, you know, he's got the perfect complexion and, you know, he's got perfect hair. And it was so offensive, you know, like for, for, all, for all this person knew that could have been his mum. It wasn't. But um, it's just things like that happen all of the time, right? Um, like the whole hair touching and everything else. So, it, yeah, I think it is really important to, to have those spaces and for us not to feel, you know, okay, well, we're being discriminated against because we're not allowed in, like, we don't need those spaces. We've, we've got those spaces. You're so right. You just reminded me that a few years ago there was a tweet where someone was like, it's Black Girls Book Club, like, tweet if you want to join, blah, blah. And Jodie Marsh was like, I'm so offended. I want to join, blah, 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 and I'm not just black. And club. someone was like, Jodie, every day is White Girls Book Club. And it's so true. Like, every space is open to white women. So it's just so ironic when you feel like suddenly, maybe take that feeling if you do feel suddenly that I've been excluded, which I'm sure I felt in the plot. Like, I'm still working towards, you never know, like a perfect ally or whatever. But um, recognizing that feeling and being like, oh, this is what it feels like. Like, that's, 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 you, it's only othering to you because it's not your day to day. It's like when, we talk about it so much with sexism, but like when women are the only women in the room, imagine being a, like the only woman and the only woman of color in the room. Like it's that extra extension on your feminism. If we're talking about like intersectional feminism, which is kind of like how I, I got here to talking about this kind of thing. Like you learn about feminism, you learn about it from the default white and everything comes from that same place. And when you extend it further, you realize that this goes so much deeper. I mean, I want to talk about race the whole time. I was saying this upstairs, it's really weird. But the minute I started to understand it, I literally couldn't find a conversation that I was having where I didn't want to talk about race because I couldn't believe that no one had told me. It was like someone had lifted the curtain and I was like, oh my fucking God, we're just walking around as if this is okay. And it's and it's weird. And I find it absolutely mind-boggling that in, at the minute, especially in the media, that we're still going, is this racist? It's like, that's just not the question. Let's say it's a girl club, yeah? 
and something really topical comes up. Because we're all girls, we're not afraid of not being feminists. So we can say whatever we think. We can comment on that thing that happened and say, well, actually, no, I thought the dad was right to do that. Or, you know, we can all sit, say, they say there's 50 girls, we can have a difference of opinion. If you're invited to a work group the next day to talk about the same thing, you're talking on behalf of women. You just are, you have to, because you're the only woman in the room and you know you're the only viewpoint that's going to factor in X, Y, Z, you know? And that's what happens when you don't allow safe spaces for black women. I want to talk about just me. I want to go on a podcast and talk about interior design. I want to go on a podcast and talk about being a mum with my style of parenting. It won't happen anytime soon because, you know, these things are much more important, by the way. So I'll I'm, have you back on to talk about that Thank next you. <laughs> no, but these things are much more important to address, but you don't get to because you're so busy defending the main point. And so if you don't allow safe spaces, when can you ever have an authentic conversation? You absolutely can't because you're so busy being the spokesperson. And also you can never be the spokesperson. When you spoke about Black Lives Matter, it made me think, I'm sure most of us, if you've got a casual work uniform, could wear a top with a feminist slogan. I'm sure you could. You might get a little bit of stick, a bit of jokes. You could never wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. You could never. Any race, you could never. Everybody would be so offended that you would wear something so political why is that statement in itself political? It's yeah. insane. You can wear a T-shirt that say, girls rule, women's rule, you know, like all this stuff that, you know, girl boss, things like that, even though you've got a boss who's a man. You could wear that. No one would say anything. If you wore a T-shirt that said Black Lives Matter, it's like, oh, who, who are you dating? Who are you, you know, <laughs> there's such a wider thing that it prompts. My husband was working when it was a Black Lives Matter rally. We only had one, haven't we? The big one that all went all through central London. Yeah. Yeah. So my husband was working and I wasn't. I went with my daughter. Maybe I was talking about different ones. It's like three and a half years ago. I've just missed a load. Okay, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I only remember one. Anyway, so um, my husband was at work. And so I went. I went with Israel. She was tiny. I had her in the sling. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so important. I want to be able to save my kids. I was here. I want to be able to say that she was there. And um, my husband's messaging me like all day, like, stay safe. Hope it's going well. So proud of you. Somebody said to my husband at work, I'm absolutely disgusted that they're allowed to do that. And my husband's so professional. Like at home, he gives me all the guys, but he's so professional. So he was just like, you know, they have to have, he's talking they, like he's not a black man, but he had to do that. Had to put himself into a person. What do you think would have happened if my husband said to his female colleagues, I'm going on the Women's Day March? He would be lauded for being a feminist. How amazing of you to think that men and women should be equal. Mm. Not that women are better than men. How amazing that you think that women and men should be equal. That's what the term Black Lives Matter means. It means we know that you don't think we matter, but we really think we should be equal. It's pointless to say all lives matter. That's what Black Lives Matter means. Mm. It means we all matter. You've been ignoring us. You've not been doing trials like you should have. You've not been holding people accountable for how they've been treating us for countless years. That's all it means. But if the term is so offensive to you, maybe you should just sit and think because in 50 years time when you're you know your grandkids are saying to you things like you don't want to be that person that didn't want to accept feminism 
back in the day. And, and that's where we are now. It's so sad and so it's really bewildering to me, if I'm honest, but that's where we are, isn't it? Yeah, it's really shocking. And I think what's scary about it is that it's like this conversation shouldn't be news because you kind of forget, but it's so true. Like, imagine Black Lives Matter is a political statement. Isn't that absolutely insane? Like, I, I, it feels like we should have gone beyond it. And I think this is why we're in such a confusing time because on the one hand, I do feel like some of us feel like we are doing the work and we're moving towards a better future and everything's getting a bit better. And maybe in certain pockets of certain parts of London, things might have improved the smidgiest bit. But the reality is that the, the vast majority of the world still won't even accept the fact that this racism is happening and that it's in everything. And you do kind of have to dig deep. And I think the work you need to do as a white person, we need to do as white people, is to actually attack our own way that we look at things. Like we were talking about earlier how, when I was saying about how um, Adams and the police force, how when I lived in Brixton, I'd get on the bus. And every time I went on the bus, I'd be looking out the window and there'd be some black person getting arrest, arrested. So I was like, this is so awful. Like every single time I'm on the bus, I'm like, this can't be, this can't be, um, what's the word, a coincidence. This is like, evidently, there's something going on here. Yeah, this is adding into your subconscious. You don't know that this is systemic racism, why black people are routinely being stopped, but that is feeding into your subconscious that black people are dangerous. I trust the police force. And every single time I go to work, I'm being fed this image, not even on TV, in real life in front of me. That's why you're right. The anti-terrorism laws, that they, they just like open up stop and search laws. And that isn't even to combat terrorists. It's to stop black people from doing what? You know, my husband used to wear a suit to work every day in his old job. Still stop and search. What are you hoping to find? What are you hoping to find? He's now late for work. He's not, you know, just all of that. And then he has to take off his suit and get to work and just be calm and polite and put up with your rubbish comments about a Black Lives Matter march, you know? It's so offensive and carrying your day as normal. So it does, it's intrinsic that you could be the most neutral person ever and want to be educated and want to learn more. But if you're continuously, you know, that's what propaganda is, isn't it? Mm. If you're continuously being fed that all terrorists look like this, and if you're continuously being fed that everybody who's being stopped by the police looks like that, you don't have to be non-smart to think, well, there must be a reason behind this. But that's why you must appreciate that it's systemic racism and that those people in power, they also have the unconscious bias. And sometimes unconscious bias is used to be like, well, I'm not racist, it's just unconscious bias. The outcome is the same to me. All you're saying is, I didn't mean it. I don't actually outwardly believe I'm better than you, but subconsciously I do. The outcome's the same. If somebody dies at the end of it, or you know, if somebody loses their job at the end of it, or somebody doesn't get an interview at the end of it, the outcome is the same for that person. So unconscious or you know, like overt racism, it's got no real bearings on me, it's the same outcome. Yeah. Which is, which is why it is so important that we aren't just thinking, oh, well, I don't do anything wrong. Like, I'm not out there doing something. You have to actively be fighting against it. Um, and, like, speaking up might seem scary, but I actually think that because... So it's really annoying that I can sit here and talk about race and that some people might be like, oh, my God, it's really cool that she talks about race when it's, like, obviously, you do that on the daily and, like, there's so many different things to do with privilege which make the, the argument really skewed and, like, Adam's got a platform to talk about race and it shouldn't really be this way. But if you are a person of privilege, use that privilege. Because the, I spoke about this on a different podcast, but someone was like, how do you deal with that feeling of like white guilt? And Rennie talks about this as well. But there's no point feeling guilty. Just leverage your privilege to make other people come up with you. It's not about 
feeling like, oh, well, it's so bad that I'm white <laughs> because that doesn't do anything for anyone and you're still going to reap the rewards. So you've got to try and make a way that if you've got that privilege, you can harness it so that other people might... And we're all learning. It's just really frustrating that, like, I wish the conversations were more around, like, okay, so what should we do? How can we invite people in? But we're constantly just battling with, is this racist? Is this racist? If you have to ask, is it racist? It's probably racist. Like, that's that's the fundamental bottom line, really, isn't it? You know, I think the thing about privilege is that it's often blind into people that have it. Mm. Um, you know, like, one of the things I had to come to terms with, maybe, like, as recent as three years ago, I remember being at an event and... I realized that as an, as an able-bodied person, I navigate life every day without ever needing to think about how am I going to get there? Like, is there step-free access to get into that building? Is it downstairs? You know, like, just there's just so many things that are just a complete blind spot to me because I never have to think about it unless it is pointed out. Um, and that's not to say that you know, if you're white, that you don't struggle in other areas of your life or that German life isn't difficult. Sometimes it is. Um, so I think that, that sometimes that conversation around around privilege um, and, and how to use it can be quite un- unproductive. Um, what was your question? Sorry. After that bit I, I can't remember. But you're, no, you're completely right. You just make me think about how, with privilege, I think sometimes the systemic part of it, maybe I should just kind of outline this more at the beginning, but it's the idea that, if someone says, like, oh, my God, you're privileged because you're white, it doesn't mean that you, like, just because I'm a white, middle-class, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied, neurotypical, privately educated woman. Daily male readers. It doesn't mean that I've never cried or that, like, I haven't got stuff going on or I haven't been through bad shit. It just means that systemically my lot is really fucking good. Like, I'm the closest to a white man you can get, pretty much. Just because someone says to to you, you're a white man, they're not saying you're an asshole. You very well might be. The likelihood is probably higher but I'm not saying that you definitely are. And I think we have to separate that and be like, okay, so privilege is the world. That's the cards have been dealt. Anything can happen within that scope. Anyone and anything can happen, but your lot is already a bit better just by virtue of where you were born, what color your skin was, who your parents are, where in the world you were born. That's what it is. It's not, per- it's not you personally haven't done something wrong for being born white. Do you know, does that add to what you're saying? Yeah, do you know, I feel like just in life generally, not just about race, but if there's something that makes you feel uncomfortable, then it's worth analysing what it is that's making you feel uncomfortable and why. And things like race and things like privilege have become, you know, negative words and things that we see badly. But it's, it's really helpful to, even if you don't agree, right? Even if you're sitting there and you think, well, you lot are really just chatting rubbish. Like, Sorry. this is, you know, this is Africa's, like, lived experience, right? So it's like, you just listen and try and understand okay i don't necessarily agree but why like how how have we reached that viewpoint how have we reached understanding you know because in policing one of the things that i realized when i joined was i was one of five police officers so i worked in southwark right so that's peckham Worth revive um i was one of five that lived in the borough everybody else lives in kent surrey essex gravesend highly populated white areas they commute in. It's a really antisocial shift pattern that they work. They date within the job. They socialize within the job. This is their whole identity, their whole bubble. And like, you might not be overtly racist. You might be a great person. But if the only interaction you ever have with somebody from a different race or religion or whatever the case may be is always within a negative context of crime, it's very easy to see how over a period of time you begin to connect those dots together. Um, 
and and you know become prejudiced, become become racist, racist. And it's easy to I think it's easy for us to lean on. You know, we're quite comfortable to an extent talking about systemic racism, and actually that that absolves us of you know our personal responsibilities in terms of talking about our own you know very personal racism totally. that we have to reckon with. Africa, can I ask you a question about something I've been thinking about lately to do with privilege? Which, as I was speaking about it, then I felt like yeah, I was saying the right thing. And then the more I think about it, it's, it's kind of like what you're saying, going back to the idea of like we are doctors and we are. All, I sometimes wonder if talking about privilege also can devalue women of colour to be like... I'm so privileged. No one thinks I am. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I Yeah, I, I think being able to articulate my feelings is a huge privilege. Yeah. You know, I can absolutely... Somebody asked me to get on stage without questions beforehand and says, can you talk about your feelings about race? I can do it. That's a privilege. Some people would shrivel up and actually do such a bad job that it's then so counterproductive for 100 people in the audience, for example. I think that's a privilege. I went to a good school was a free school but it's a good school you know it was a really good school in the area when people couldn't afford private school anymore they used to come to my school <laughs> that's a fact <laughs> it'd be like year 10 and year 11 we'd get a load of girls come over but yeah no I went to a good school my husband went to university didn't really get to do anything with it after that because of all the other things that come with it but you know I count my privileges as lots of things um, I have a really beautiful home it's social housing but it's a beautiful home I've got secure tenancy because it's social housing, which I see as a huge privilege because who has security in their home nowadays? It's allowed me to put down roots, you know? So I do, I try to have these conversations and then also look introspectively as well. I have so many privileges behind me, but that's why I acknowledge that I must talk about this because I have lots of privileges. So when I see people with so much more privilege than me who can't be bothered to address any injustices, I just think it's such a shame. It's a real shame, you know, you've got all this time. And also, people would listen to you. So it would be really great if you decided to talk about different things. You know, when my friends who won't sign my petition send me one about the Amazon, I'm a bit like, well, I do care about the environment, but I really wanted you to care about people first, you know. Mm. But that's them using their privilege in a way that they see fit, and I have to respect that. I think the word privilege, the word white, like they've just made us all shrivel up and stop listening. Um, and so I don't say white privilege ever. If you do follow me, I'll, I'll never speak about white privilege because that stops anybody non-white from taking responsibility for their actions or not actions that they're not doing, sorry. Um, but yeah, it's just acknowledging your privilege and using it in the spaces that you can. You know, maybe nobody else would get to talk to your parents. Nobody else would ever have that access apart from you. So what a huge privilege that you could go home and correct them in a way that they would never find offensive or pull them out on things. Um, somebody gave a brilliant example. Someone wrote in to me and said that we focus on, I'm going to get it the wrong way around, we focus on the tailwinds, sorry, we focus on the headwinds that hold us back instead of the tailwinds that push us forward. So we say, well, I didn't get this in life, and I didn't get that, but what about all the things that pushed you forward and helped you get where you get? You know, lots of people say to me, I went to uni and I had a job and I, you know, I had to work an unpaid internship well guess what if you weren't privileged you would not be able to work unpaid somebody paid your rent somebody bought you food every single week if you weren't privileged you wouldn't be able to do an unpaid internship so what happens like with my husband when you do something that's creative at uni is that when you start out all these things are competitive it's who you know most of the things start out unpaid if you're from an underprivileged background you can't do this anymore. 
was a lovely dream. You got to do it. You've got loads of debt now. And you have to go and find a job that pays. That, that's the way it goes. So, you know, we like to say, I didn't get this and, you know, this held me back. But we should always absolutely acknowledge the things that help perpetuate us forward. If you just take a moment to think about all the things they are, it's probably quite a lot. Even being able to move back home after uni. I know people that can move back home when they're married. I left home at 16. If I knocked to my mum's door on my 17th birthday and said, can I, um, can I move back? It would be a swift no, you know? And I think it's just important to acknowledge because otherwise what we think is, well, if only that person worked harder, they could have what I have. And so this whole race of people are quite bitter when in actual fact, it's not about working hard at all. Um, and I would encourage you all to, if you don't know, sorry to be patronising, but look at the difference between equality and equity because equity is hugely important if we're going to strive for any kind of fair society. I love all of that. I was wondering if you guys had any questions and we will take some questions for any of us. Hi, um, I just wanted to ask um, maybe if you could just talk about, historically I've learned about the objectification of the black female body specifically. Um, if you could just, yeah, talk about that, that would be very interesting. Yeah, it just goes to exoticizing or fetishizing anything, doesn't it? It's Afro hair as well. It's also the male black body as well. If you are dating, if you're white and you're dating a black guy, what's the first thing someone's going to ask? It is that, isn't it? Um, and for, for races that are so apparently terrible and so, you know, like so many derogatory things that are said about us, it is a shame that the only thing that's objectified is our body. Still to a point of, for example, so tonight was a big night for me. I cut all my hair off in April. I'd, I'd relaxed it since I was 14. I'm 29. And it was literally bald because <laughs> I wanted all the chemicals to come out. And so this is my natural hair. It's the first time I've ever worn it out. I've been wearing braids since forever. I thought if I can't wear it tonight, I'm never going to wear it. So just do it. Um, but every place I've ever worked, apart from my most recent workplace, it's been written into the dress code that you can't have Afro hairstyles or camo or braids or plaits. I work for lots of places and senior manager. It's always been said. If a colleague of mine came in with two braids, a white colleague, it would be fine because that is seen as a high fashion hairstyle now because certain white famous people have adopted it. So that goes to the objectification. Um, you know, things have been teased for having stereotypical black features let's say bigger lips or a bigger bum, those are things that are now in the media seen to be beautiful, but still black women are seen as the least desirable in the UK, the least desirable. You don't have to watch silly things like Love Island to know that if there's not a black guy there, a black girl's not getting picked. She shouldn't have gone on it. It's, it's one of those things, like it, it's that kind of thing. So the objectification, you could take it as a compliment, but can you really, if it's only afforded to people who don't actually look like you? that makes sense that's a great question also your helix fab thank you hi um i just wondered if you could discuss the concept of like dating apps being inherently racist so i, I remember there was a thing about um there's a dating app called hinge and i think hinge is um like one of the only ones I've, i'm not on them but there's like you you can actually filter people by racial preference on Hinge, whereas on other ones you can't. Yeah. It's more it's more broad. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, it would be difficult for me to kind of speak to that because it's not, it's not my experience. But I think that, um, you know, like we live in a racialized world mm. and, it, and it impacts 
everything. Do you know what I mean? And it and, and it just it infiltrates everything, including tech. Um, like, and there are so there are so many privileges that are just deeply ingrained into us. And when you're on a dating app, I think it's super easy, right? Because everything is so fast. It's just swipe, 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 swipe. Um, and we're all. You know, we're all products of our environment. We're all conditioned. The beauty standards that we have in this country would be completely different if we were born somewhere else. Um, yeah, I don't know if that really... I don't know if you have anything to Can add. Can I add but, to that? I don't do yeah. dating apps, unfortunately. I did before I was married, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really hard because it is so desirable to date a black guy now. It's, it's really, really desirable. Um, but black women still not, like absolutely not as well. I, if I had a pound for every time I was told you're really pretty for a black girl or I'd never date a black girl, but I find you quite attractive. Whereas for black guys, it's very different. Um, and I think my experience has been even my husband's friends who are majority black and mixed race. None of them date black girls either, by the way. I'm the only black wife, girlfriend in the friendship group. And for me, even the fact that they don't acknowledge their own prejudice, um, which I think comes from not wanting their tough childhood repeating itself with their child I really do whereas for me I wanted a child that looked like me so I could do it right if that made sense um, and I think that dating apps they allow you to almost play into those um, fetishes don't they you know if, if you are a non-white woman and somebody does reach out to you it's very likely that your race will be mentioned in the message whether it's seen as a good thing or not um, another thing about Love Island which I know is quite petty but I had switched off last season. I'm into it again this season. I switched off last season because the first one, all these girls kept saying, and um, so whenever there was a black or mixed show, sky, come on, all these girls kept saying, I, oh yeah, I love a bad boy type. What the heck is a bad boy type? And why are you only using it to describe black and mixed shows, men? It is that whole very weird, um, I always say it wrong, but fetishism or shism, I don't know. But um, yeah, I think dating apps help us to access that a lot easier. Because it is the visual, isn't it? Yeah, that is really true. Uh, I can imagine raising children in a kind of racist system is kind of a precarious road. But um, what is the what is the point you try and hammer home? So you're not scaring them, but you you want them to understand. Because you know, kids kids they just they don't they don't see it, do they? It's a really good question. My dad did all of that, but scared us as well. <laughs> And my dad is an idol rasta, very like long, long dreadlocks. Idol just refers to more of like an orthodox way of living. So he's like an idol rasta. And um, it's a really hard balance because I had that in the back of my mind. So everything that I want to achieve, I just don't ever mention that she's black. And I find that to be a really good balance. So I focus on all the attributes that I want her to be sure of and confident of and um, allow her to know you know that we're big on consent so you don't have to hug relatives you don't have to kiss relatives if you want to absolutely um but we don't ever mention her race and sometimes she says like oh I'm the white girl on tv and I try to not pick up on it because the next time she's the black girl on tv and children should be able to do that you know my dad would have hammered home you are the black girl I didn't want to be scary spice all the time, you know? <laughs> that can have like an opposite effect on you. So yeah, I, I really do. We, my husband and I are very aligned. We're very conscious of how we want to raise her to be smart, confident, kind, as I said. Um, kindness is something that a lot of parents who are fighting racism, you forget because you're on the defense all the time. 
And I think it's imperative that my four-year-old is kind. I want her to be remembered in the classroom for being the kind person. So all of that, I just try to never, not yet anyway, focus on the fact that she's black. Adam, I feel like you could potentially yeah, speak to this as well. Um, so I think for me, what, I, what I've, it's really tough. Um, and for me, it's been about trying to, trying to create an environment and a space where that aspect of my son's identity is normalised. It's been like, I think for me, that's probably been the biggest challenge that I've had is how, how, I, how I do that. Because what, what you don't want to do is you don't want to steal the joy of your child's childhood and their ability to just navigate through life. Just being a carefree child without being told you've got to work 10 times as hard or you've got to jump through these kind of hoops. So there's this constant kind of trying to, trying to protect them from that and shield them from that. And it's interesting. Recently started to, or today... Um, and he's just recently started to, I guess, identify with race. Um, and I think that was, you know, like when they watch cartoons, it's like, you know, the yellow one and the red one. And, and, and we were out and he, and he referred to somebody as, as a black man. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's interesting. This is, this is new. Um, so I guess, yeah, similar to what you were saying, it's just really trying to create a, create an environment in a space where that's not how he sees the world and it's not how he sees himself. Um, and it's, it's just not a big deal. Like it's just normal. Do you know, I remember, um, you know, you, you made a reference to Stormzy. I remember uh, like seeing Stormzy um, on Glastonbury, like headlining Glastonbury and seeing Ez, like my son's Ezra, like standing in front of the What's TV, that? like Ezra. That's my daughter's name. Hey. <laughs> there you go. So and this is why I chose you guys. Um, but that was really beautiful, like to to see that to see that happen, um, and to, for that to be normalised is, is really important. I try to make sure that the, the people that he's around, do you know what I mean, like godparents, like there's a, there's a, like we don't raise our children in isolation, right? Like we raise them in communities. There's a and shout out to another podcast called the Dope Black Dads. They're oh, dope. Marvin. Yeah, Marvin, yeah. Marvin Harrison, and they they're great, and they do something called the Village, which is like a, an extended network, which is just beyond black people, and they've been great. Um, so having that environment and that space where, where he can be in and see other people that look like him and role models has been really helpful and really important for, for me and for him. That's really lovely. Should we do, do you want to do one more question? Sorry for my voice. Before. <laughs> um, you spoke about childbirth and black women. I was hoping you could touch on that a bit more because I saw an article about it and then it kind of disappeared. And I think you mentioned a petition. So I know there's a lot we should be doing, but because you mentioned it, could you talk about that a bit yeah, more? Yeah, of course. Please? So there's a report called the Embrace Report. Um, I'm not a medical professional, but basically that's from last year. And uh, black women are five times more likely to die after childbirth or the weeks that come after that. And um, I think Asian women are twice as likely to die. And nobody knows the reason so even after that report was brought out, there wasn't anything substantive to say. So because we've addressed the reason, this is what we're going to do to combat it. And so the reason the petition is important is because we need action now. <clears throat> it's, it's a really harrowing figure, isn't it? It's a really harrowing figure. And, you know, I've listened to lots of different medical professionals and I, I won't quote them at all. But basically, a lot of the medical practices that we still use to this day and medical professionals that we laud and hold in high regard, they tested um, without pain relief on black women because, and slaves, and we're talking about in America, 
because they are believed to have a higher pain threshold. And so that has translated to today. And you're less likely to be offered pain relief if you're black. You're less likely for your pain to be believed. You're more likely to get childbirth to be sent home if it's something serious because it's proven that you're believed to have a higher pain threshold. And what that leads to is people saying, something's wrong, I know it's wrong, um, and it's just not being taken seriously. I had a really lovely birth with my second daughter, Ezra, and um, which was really lovely. I actually, like, Israel was 55-hour labor. Ezra was like three and a half, it was great. And I got to the hospital, I actually got the bus there, it was that kind of chaotic. Got off the 390, went straight in, and I said, I need you to check how far I am because I'm actually about to have this baby. And she said, you're eight centimeters. It took me two and a half days to get to eight centimeters with Israel. And she said to me, right, so we're going upstairs. I said, I need gas and air. She said, if you can make it upstairs, I'll give you some gas and air. And I didn't know about this report then. I just knew that my previous birth was horrific. And it wasn't until after, because my husband didn't believe it either. He listened to the, the podcast. It was on BBC Women's Out. It's well worth listening to. My husband cried his eyes out. And he said to me, they, they robbed us of a good birth with Israel and they robbed you of a great birth with Ezra because no other woman would have been asked to walk up the stairs on their eight centimeters dilated. And I didn't have any pain relief, I just had gas and air, but I was denied that even because I wasn't crying my eyes out and sobbing, but I was in hypnobirthing, so I've, you know, I'd kind of like <laughs> tried to like breathe with pain and we wasn't calling it contractions and things like that. So that's why unconscious bias is so terrible. That's why I don't believe that it's not serious because people will die if you don't take them seriously, mm -hmm. you know? And NHS is known for being systemically racist as it is. So I even had a black doctor. I don't think that necessarily makes a difference. But if the people that you're trusting have written down practices in textbooks that you have to study to get your recent qualification, you can understand why the stats are so horrifying. Um, I suppose this is open to all of you. Um, I'm trying to widen my reading at the moment. Is there any authors, any books you could recommend that um, kind of give a point of view of a of someone that's not like myself? I'm really bad. I've got ADHD, so I struggle with reading. <laughs> but also, widen your social media as well yeah. to real life people that live in similar areas to you, but maybe they just wouldn't be your friends. That's fine. Um, but diversify your feed as well. Diversify the hashtags that you follow because anything that you follow will also be a default of white. If you search pregnancy, you'll only see white women. It's a fact. If you search bride, you'll only see white women. And so that's why there are so many niche um, hashtags. People always say to me, if you don't want people to talk about your daughter's hair, how come you've written all these hashtags? It's about finding the community as well and directing people to you. So you know, if you come across something interesting, see who they follow, see what hashtags they put underneath. You can follow hashtags and it means you don't need to have followed the person, but they'll regularly show in your feed. And um, because that becomes your newspaper as well, doesn't it? It becomes your daily. But if, like me, you struggle reading, you should read. <laughs> but um, also doing it with your feed as well is really important. Yeah. So I guess it kind of depends on what topics you kind of want to read around or what it is you're looking to, to learn. I think um, like intersectional black feminist literature is is great and it, and it covers such a wide um variety there's there's so many like there's so many amazing books um robin d'angelo um white fragility um i love angela davis that like, angela davis's literature is just phenomenal that like, has been huge for me um 
there's a collective called um, Abolitionist Futures, and they've just started a reading club, which I think started like last week. Um, and I think they're reading through that one book a month, but there'll be like a, a whole reading list that you can go on there. Um, and that will have like so many different different topics. But um, yeah, or like follow me on Goodreads. Like there's heaps of like just books that I've been reading through that have been helpful for me and might be helpful for you. But yeah. Can I add one? It's not out yet, but Kenzie's Breathweight has got a book coming out called I'm Not Your Baby Mother. And it's about her own experience, but also she's drawn from the experiences of other black women and just the, how does she paraphrase it? I guess just fighting the stereotypical black pregnant mum, which is a baby mother more often than not. Mm. It's not a wife. It's not someone who plans to have their children or, you know, um, and I've been following as she's been doing her research. It looks like it's set to be a great book. That's amazing. I completely agree about diversifying your feed, by the way. Do you, do you know Houseman's? So Houseman's is a bookshop. It's in King's Cross. There's another one called Bookmarks, which is near Tottenham Court Road, but Houseman's. Um, Hello. Is it near, is, no, but is Houseman's next to a drink shop too? I think so. It's just Pass it all of, the time and just see it in my subconscious. That's crazy. So it's a, it's classed as a radical bookshop. Um, but if you go in there, there's, yeah, it's my favourite place in the world. Um, and there's like all different sections of like, feminist literature or gender studies or economics and you'll be able to find something in there for sure will you give me the do they have a website and i'll put it in the show notes yeah amazing i want to go that sounds fab importantly more importantly if you want to find you guys obviously don't stalk them but if you want to find them online or follow them or follow their work or find it more where can we find you um, i'm the vitamin d project and um, at the vitamin d project I had a blog, but then I realised I'd only written three posts, so I got rid of it. <laughs> it's still up there somewhere. But yeah, I'm mainly just on Instagram. Uh, yeah, my socials are all the same. So Adam Pugh, A-D-A-M-P-U-G-H, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming, guys. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I can't thank you both enough for sharing with me. I know it's a tricky topic, but I hope that we've answered some questions or maybe opened some more questions up for you. So thank you so much for coming. I will come down to the bar to say hi in a minute. Um, If you want to stick around, say hey.